thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And as always, I'm delighted to have you join with me today. I believe we come to the last part of our little series looking at the article by Arthur Leff, the late law professor at Yale University, published in the Duke Law Journal back in 1979, entitled Unspeakable Ethics and the Unnatural Law. But before I get to the heart of today's program, I want to again remind those of you who may be within driving distance of Kingsport, Tennessee, or what's commonly called the Tri-Cities area, that on August 26th, from 9 o'clock a.m. Eastern to noon, I will be conducting a seminar on transgenderism and public policy. It's free, although we do ask that you register so we can uh, make sure we properly accommodate those who come. Um, you can register, if you'd like, by emailing us at info at F-A-C-T-N dot O-R-G. That's info at F-A-C-T-N dot org. So with that as an introduction, let me get into the heart of today's podcast. And I hope this is one you will seriously think about sharing with your friends, because uh, we're going to talk about something that's critically important related to the Constitution and its continuing efficacy in our nation for solving uh, the disagreements and problems that we're up against. So I think it's it's fundamentally important. And Leff actually addresses this, having acknowledged that, well, there isn't any God who could give us a complete, transcendent, authoritative set of rules for the regulation of our behavior uh, individually and collectively as a society. He comes to the final possibility. We've looked at the other possibility in previous episodes, and he asks this question. Can the Constitution successfully function as the God of the Bible to validate the ethical rightness of a law that its processes produce. Okay. And he says this quite plainly, quote, none of the problems, the ones we've been discussing in previous weeks, can be solved that way. And he says the reason is that all of our problems of constitutional interpretation arise because, this is very insightful, it's most likely impossible to write a constitution or create one by interpretation that does not simultaneously invoke more than one theory as to where ultimate, unchallengeable, normative power is to be placed. Okay, and that's what we were looking for is um, an ultimate, unchallengeable, normative power to answer the playground bully question says who whenever we say, well, this is the law and you should or you ought to do this. At any rate, he says, whether it's theoretical possible or not, he said, it's not the case with the real Constitution that we have. It's equivocal. 
Now, what is he saying in that sentence, and what is he saying about our Constitution? Well, he says that even if we, quote, assume for the moment that the Constitution can be treated as God, and that it's not only transcendent but imminent, and that when it speaks to us, we can hear it, he says, well, one of the problems that becomes evident in the Constitution itself is basically what he calls a structural equivocation. And here's what he means by that. At the very beginning of the Constitution, it says, we the people, right? So he says, the people have the ultimate normative word, according to the preamble. And he says, but, quote, it's ostentatiously unclear whether that godlike role is lodged in the people as a category or in each constituent person of we the people. So what he's really saying is, based on the face of the document, if ultimate, unquestioned, normative power is divided between two fundamentally different conceptions of personhood, now that's his word, personhood. In other words, as he said, quote, person as fundamental moral building block of people and person as mere constituent cell of the fundamental moral entity known as the people. He said, so with those two views, we have a constitution that simultaneously establishes individual rights and a general democracy, or the people collectively. Now, now here's what he means, and watch how this plays out as a practical matter. He says this, quote, if total final normative authority were assigned to each biological individual, and if he were made morally autonomous, that's what we discussed in previous episodes, no rules to govern the interaction between these individuals, the goblets as he called them, could be justified under the assumption of moral autonomy. There would be nothing but rights. That's all you would have. Rights of each person asserted against every other person, and no person able to authoritatively judge the right asserted by another. It's my truth, right? Then he says, but if on the other extreme, moral finality were lodged in the people as a class, what he earlier called a category, then no claim for moral breathing space could be upheld for any individual person out of which the class was constituted. If the people decided, by whatever process the Constitution validates, what was right, it would be unchallengeably right for each person. There could be no rights. And friends, what he's expressing here is the ancient philosophical question of the one and the many that's been going on since the ancient days of Greece. Rusus Rushduni, in his book, The One and the Many, says that the modernists, without the God of the Bible, have no way to solve the problem of authority revealed in what left just described. The one and the many, or put another way, which is ultimate, which has priority, the individual or the group, the person or the people. You see, only belief 
in a triune God who is one in essence and plural in persons as the fundamental reality, can we even think it possible that the one and the many can be harmonized and each fundamentally true about the nature of authority without subjugating one to the other, the individual to the group or the group to the individual. And that's the riddle, how this tension of the one and the many can be solved that left can't solve without God. But at least to his credit, he acknowledges the problem, and most don't. Our culture can't decide if it wants rights of the individual over against the group or the rights of the group over against the individual. So, for example, are individual persons victims of oppression or only groups of persons? Well, critical theory says it's the group. And that's why when someone in the group, the cell, as the left called it, has a different view, well, that's just not allowed. You're out of the group. And according to the group, you should not have the benefits of justice that that group might obtain by overcoming another group. You're left out. You're not entitled to it. Now, left does say this. As long as the Constitution is accepted, or at least not overthrown, it successfully functions as a God would in a valid ethical system. Its restrictions and accommodations govern. They are the supreme law, which the Constitution has a supremacy clause, right? The, the outcomes, the laws that are produced could be other than they are, but they are what they are, and that's that, he says. But of course, my friends, that really is the question today, isn't it? Whether the Constitution should continue as this authoritative uh, God for us and deciding the answers to our disputes, and, and can it even do so? But let's at least assume for a moment that we continue to accept the Constitution as authoritative. And so long as that happens, the left says there are two things that we need to think about. First, he says, quote, there will be, as with all divine pronouncements, a continuous controversy over what God says. In other words, what the Constitution says or means. But whatever the practical importance of the power to determine those questions, in other words, uh, the practical question of who, who decides, uh, whether it's Congress, executive order, federal judiciary, or the corresponding apparatus of the states, at least the problems are, are, are theoretically unthreatening. In other words, what I'm taking him to say is that as long as the Constitution continues to be considered God as authoritative, then we just need to be certain that the right power determined the question. Once that's done, whatever the appropriate oracle or priest of the substitute God declares, whether it's the Supreme Court or Congress or, as I said, the states, it, it's good and it's authoritative and we should obey it. But his second observation is the key. He writes this, 
It is only when the Constitution ceases to be seen as fulfilling God's normative role, ceases, that is, to be the normative system that defines reality, then what? And he follows that with a statement and a troubling question. His statement is this, when as impossible with a real God, it, meaning the Constitution, is seen to have gaps, a crisis comes to exist. Okay, so everything's fine until we find a gap in the law of this substitute God, and that's when a crisis comes to exist. Now, if you'll remember, when I introduced this series, Left said that what we wanted or really needed was an evaluator who would give us a complete set of authoritative rules to follow. He's saying that God gives us that, and a constitution can't. And it can't, precisely, because it's not God over everything. But, my friends, and, and this will sound heretical, but, but hear me out, God doesn't give us a complete set of rules either. You may remember our discussion about a biblical conception of law several weeks ago. We are required to meditate on his law day and night and grow in wisdom and understanding that we might fill in the gaps. You, you may recall me juxtaposing Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 against each other several weeks back. Um, Proverbs 26, 4 says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. But verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly. Well, which is it? When do I apply which rule? That requires judgment. That requires wisdom. Now, with, with that said, let's, let's proceed to the question Leff asks in connection with the fact that a constitution has gaps. And you may be able to guess what the question is. He asks, what wins when the constitution will not say or says two things at the same time. Now, I'm going to focus on the will not say and focus specifically on a couple of present situations where this gap issue is raised. You see, the gap problem is the problem in the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization last summer that reversed Roe versus Wade. And while we can rejoice in that result, the court punted back to the states individually and severally, not as a majority of states, and by Democratic vote in each state, deciding what a, the word person means in the Constitution. And effectively, the highest court in our land said, uh, we don't know. So each state gets to decide for itself, and the majority in each state wins. In other words, and what left doesn't say quite so clearly, is one must bring a worldview to the interpretation of the Constitution. And the Supreme Court effectively said, now think about this, 
In its worldview, there is no lawful and objectively determinable foundation upon which to give meaning to the word person pronounced in our substitute for God, the Constitution. Now, let me repeat that again. The Supreme Court's worldview in punting this issue back to the states is that there is no lawful or law preceding the Constitution or objectively determinable foundation upon which to give meaning to the word person in the Constitution. Think about it. If that's the case, why is there any meaning to any word in the Constitution? Where did its words come from? Or, more fundamentally, does the origin of the word even matter in an evolutionary worldview? In other words, if everything is changing, which is an evolutionary worldview, then the words used to describe things at one time must change. With an evolutionary worldview, we really shouldn't be surprised that the word person would change in meaning if our understanding of what a person is and what persons are for is changing. And that, my friends, is really at the heart of the transgender litigation pending in the United States Court of Appeals in the Sixth Circuit in connection with Tennessee's law preventing doctors from disordering a child's reproductive endocrinology. I mean, this is the issue. Are persons male and female, and are they so because, in principle, they are generative beings? If not, sterilizing a child is not an offense against nature or human nature or in a Christian cosmology. It's not an offense against or an affront to God. That is the gap that right now we have in our Constitution. And that's a problem that our substitute God, the Constitution and its high priests, the justices on the Supreme Court, are going to eventually have to answer. Or we'll have to continue letting the godlet states each decide the meaning of the Constitution in regard to that word for themselves. And, you know, I, th I think I'm going to stop there because there's much, I think, to digest here. Um, I'm going to leave a discussion of how I've observed Christian lawyers and policy experts responding to this question in our legislative chambers and in our courtrooms until next week. But I hope this is something that you'll share with your friends to help them realize that without God, we still must have a God, and the only possibility before us is the Constitution, and its continuing validity is now in doubt. Even its meaning, the meaning of the words in it, are in doubt. With that said, I hope you'll join me next week as we look at how Christians have been responding to this fundamental proposition, and to be honest, it's disturbingly ugly. But you need to understand it and how we can fight back. And I hope you'll join me for next week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. 
For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.